If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns. And I just really appreciate our alignment there. So next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, you can shop their socks at ConsciousStep.com and use our code GREENDREAMER for 20% off. Again, it's ConsciousStep.com and GREENDREAMER for 20% off. So from the very beginning, conservation was wrapped up in privilege, essentially, and the idea that certain people could have access to this resource over others. You know, that's the Western model of conservation is keeping people out of these landscapes. Now, if you look at indigenous peoples, their presence in the landscape often created more biodiversity. Our guest today is Gina Ray Laserva, who's a geographer, environmental anthropologist, award-winning writer, and author of the new book, Feasting Wild, In Search of the Last Untamed Food, where she traces our relationship to wild foods and shows what we sacrifice when we domesticate them, including biodiversity, indigenous knowledge, and an important connection to nature. It's a really fascinating conversation that I'm really excited for you to delve into. We talk Talk about how colonialism has disrupted and shifted our relationship with wild nature and wild foods, and of course, by extension, also transformed our landscapes. The line between building reciprocity in relationship with our living world to both give and take versus simply commodifying the wild and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. 
So I grew up on about 20 acres in northern New Mexico. We lived off of this crazy winding dirt road. So I didn't actually have a lot of friends that were willing to come visit me. So I spent a lot of time just wandering around outside alone. My parents seemed to be very cool with me disappearing for hours into the arroyos. And, you know, I would sit in these in the pinyon trees and just sort of watch the birds and the bugs looking for horny toads, eating prickly pear cactus fruit. So I think from a very young age, being outside in nature was just sort of my my standard operating mode. I mean, that's just what I did to entertain myself. Mm. And we had we had this amazing garden um, and there were, you know, rattlesnakes in the garden and scorpions in the house and centipedes that would get cut in half by the mouse traps in our garage. So for me, wild nature was just always kind of around and part part of my childhood in a very deep way. Right. And then when I went off to college, I decided to study geology and geography mostly because I loved being outside and that was a great way to spend time outside of the classroom. And I actually studied natural disasters for a long time and did some work around that. And then transitioned into the kind of food research about five years ago when I went back to grad school and realized that food was a really interesting way of talking about our relationship to the natural world. It's sort of our most basic way that we interact with nature, even though most people um, don't realize it when they're sitting down for a plate of food. That plate of food is really emblematic of, you know, biosphere and ecosystems and all these these large scale processes that we don't think about very much on a day-to-day basis. So your upcoming book publishing May 26th, Feasting Wild Traces Our Relationship with Wild Foods, as well as the many, many learning lessons from that, that's a very particular angle to take. So I'm wondering if that kind of came about through your childhood, you know, being exposed to wild nature a lot. Yeah. So initially I wasn't really thinking about my childhood when I was when I was writing this book, but I became very interested in the fact that wild foods seem to be having this resurgence in society. It seemed like more and more restaurants were serving things like ramps or foraged mushrooms. You had these very famous restaurants like Noma kind of becoming designated the top restaurant in the world, and they were serving a lot of wild foods. And I was just really curious sort of why we had this interest in wild food at a moment when it seemed like our environment was more threatened than ever. Mm. Um, And at the same time, you know, 99% of human history, we hunted and we gathered, and that's how we sustained ourselves. And now most people in the world will not eat anything that isn't entirely domesticated. And so I was very curious about this shift where wild nature was something that was subsistence for so long and now has sort of become a luxury. And to me, that was just a very interesting way of looking at our relationship to nature in general, where we we basically have to have enough money and time to go out into wild nature and treat it as this luxury where we can go camping or go hiking versus the experience of actually subsisting off the land, which fewer and fewer people do. But as I was writing the book, I really did realize that my interest in this topic was very deep and did go back to those days as a child, just wandering around the hills, roaming and exploring and observing nature. And, um, you know, my dad used to take us up into the mountains to forage for things. So it definitely was a part of myself that I kind of rediscovered upon writing this book. As you outlined, two centuries ago, nearly half the North American diet was found in the wild. Today, so-called wild foods are becoming expensive commodities served to the wealthy in top restaurants. 
So clearly a lot has happened throughout that time period. Um, what do you think is important for people to recognize in that history of the evolution of our relationship with wild nature? And what were some of the key turning points that shifted the ways we look at and treat the wild? So, you know, we've had huge landscape changes in this country over the past 200 years. Colonialism brought a commodity crop agricultural system to this country. And we ate a ton of wildlife to, you know, 200 years ago, mid 19th century, you could go to the markets in New York and Boston and find hundreds of different kinds of wild birds for sale. Mm. So people were eating all kinds of things. And then what you had in the mid 19th century was the expansion of the railroads and the expansion of a market economy. So you know, before you basically ate what was in your region. And then as the market economy and the railroads expanded, these people in urban centers were able to get products from all over the country and eventually all over the world. And that really changed our food system from one that was based on local wild foods to one that was based on domesticated commodity crops that eventually, you know, now most of our food comes from a lot of other countries, the way that we've we've organized our agriculture. So I think in that time as well, urbanization has really disconnected us from the landscape. In the last 50 years, we we shifted. So now more people live in cities than live rurally on a global scale. Um, and I think that's really changed our relationship to wild nature, to the idea of wild nature. So it's no longer something that we're relying on or that we have to battle against, but it's really this sort of thing that's out there and we can watch, you know, nice nature documentaries about wild animals and not really think about the fact that we still rely on that nature tremendously for everything that we do. Right. And I guess even for people that live in more urban environments today, there's still a big difference between urban folks going out to the countryside to attempt to reconnect with nature versus going into actual native wilderness to reconnect with that because our countryside, even though there's a lot more nature, there's a lot more space, a lot more trees, plants, crops, animals, and so forth, that has already been changed because of the ways that we may have wiped out local ecosystems in order to build agricultural systems that I guess the European settlers may have been used to, like the foods that they ate that they brought in from elsewhere. Is that sort of an accurate way of looking at this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of the pastoral goes back to the ancient Greeks. So even in those days, people, wealthy urbanites were going out to the country to sort of experience this more simple pastoral lifestyle. But yeah, in terms of when European colonialization was actually an ecological process, because when when they came and they brought this commodity agricultural system, I mean, they brought cows and, and those sort of animals that were not native to this country. And that really affected the soil. It compacted the soil. The the Native American practices of burning, like for instance, the forests on the East Coast, that had created a whole different forest ecology. And then European colonization came and they deforested a lot of that land. And so actually over the course of just a couple hundred years, colonization created this, this grassland essentially on the East Coast where there had been these old growth forests. And since that time, the forests have come back because, uh, again, we, we've we changed how we use, use the land there. There's a great book called um, Changes in the Land by William Cronin, and it, it really categorizes how these, these 
these systems of politics and economy were actually ecological systems as well and really changed the landscape in ways that were quite dramatic over a very short period of time. So things like cutting down the trees actually then affected the rivers and the lakes because you had the days became hotter, there was more wind, and so you actually had a drying out of some of the water systems. You know, all this stuff is so interconnected. You had a lot of invasive species, so uh, Europeans brought honeybees, which supposedly some indigenous Americans called the white man's fly, and a sign of them meant that colonists were coming westward. There was rats that escaped from ships. There was all kinds of huge ecological changes that occurred with colonization. And that really impacted the food systems as well. Right. So it sounds like instead of the European settlers attempting to learn from Native American cultures in terms of the wild foods that exist here bioregionally, they kind of came in, well, it was part of their strategy of colonization to really burn and wipe out a lot of the Native Americans' food sources in efforts to control them. So do you feel like we're sort of set up for failure if we don't begin to restore and change the food system that we have today because of the broken foundations that it was built on top of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important. I mean, I love history. I'm a total history nerd. So a lot of this book does look at this food history and and the ecological history. And I think it's really important to understand the roots of conservation in order to, like you said, not kind of fall into the traps. So, you know, some of the earliest forest laws in the whole world were passed by kings in the 10th and 11th century because they wanted to protect their supply of wild game meat in the forests of Europe. And so they prevented people from cutting down the forests. You know, they had really harsh measures. So people who were po- who poached animals, they'd have their eyes torn out. They were castrated. Sometimes they were taken away from the country. So from the very beginning, conservation was wrapped up in privilege, essentially. And the idea that certain people could have access to this resource over others you know, that's the Western model of conservation is keeping people out of these landscapes. Now, if you look at indigenous peoples, their presence in the landscape often created more biodiversity. So some of the the North American indigenous people's foodways, the ways that they manage the land actually increased biodiversity. For instance, they built fish weirs on the East Coast, and this actually created habitat for a lot of waterfowl, different juvenile fish. It created marshland. And so in providing wild foods for themselves, they were actually increasing the abundance of these different wild animals in general. So I think it's really interesting to think about conservation as, you know, the way that we have it set up now is this idea that we just take people off the landscape and that's going to be conservation and this idea of the pristine environment. I don't think there's, I don't believe in pristine environments. I don't think there is anything that's pristine. There hasn't been for a very, very long time. You go into the most sort of wild forests in Africa and in the Congo Basin, and you'll find evidence of previous peoples that lived there. As long as humans have been there, we've been an ecological force in the landscape. We've been making changes. We've had an impact. The question is how we manage those impacts and and whether they're a force for abundance and mutual thriving, or whether they're a force for destruction. Right. So on this note, I personally dislike the narrative that is often perpetuated that humanity is destructive, because there are people on this earth that are able to have regenerative impacts on the environment. And a lot of the uh, land-based indigenous communities and the ways that they're able to 
be a part of their ecosystems. And I think this more Western approach to conservation of like uh, setting aside a big chunk of national forest or something like that, that is completely off limits for any sort of, I don't want to use the word use, but like, yeah, like having Mm -hmm. a reciprocal relationship with that ecosystem. I feel like having this sort of approach where you just don't really touch it at all furthers the idea that we're separate from nature rather than reminding ourselves that we are a part of nature. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it's important not to fall into the sort of noble savage trap where we look to indigenous people and we say, oh, look, they've always lived in this perfect balance and harmony with nature. I mean, there were practices that they had that also were problematic. Sometimes burning of the forest got out of hand and they burned large areas. They, you know, their their homes accumulated various kinds of garbage. I mean, we, we will always have some sort of impact, but I think what those cultures can teach us is this idea that we are in relationship with nature, that we are a part of nature, as you said, and that I I always say every act is an ecological act. Everything that we do has an ecological impact, and we are part of this much larger fabric. And I think that can be a really scary thought, but it also is very liberating because it allows us to see ourselves within this larger community of both human and non-human creatures in this sort of ever-evolving system And that allows us to then look at our actions on a different level in terms of impact and in terms of, yeah, like you said, what we do isn't necessarily destructive. There's many ways that we actually create more biological abundance and diversity. So then the question becomes, how do we shift basic biological needs of feeding ourselves, feeding, you know, seven and a half billion people in a way that's actually going to be beneficial? But I think it's hard. I think there's, you know, I have a friend who's he studies bacteria and soil. And he always says that, you know, humans, our impact, it's not a matter of kind, it's a matter of scale. So all creatures have some sort of impact on their ecology. You know, like red ants can actually make it much harder for other species to exist within the areas that they're building their colonies. So humans are also a colony species and we have an impact. But we are now operating on a scale that is on the level of, of planetary force. So mm-hmm. we move more soil around the world than the earth does on its own through rivers and and mountain building processes. I mean, we have become so huge in our impact that it's it's really hard to think about kind of global planetary ecology without the role of humans acting almost like a keystone species kind of regulating various amounts of nature. Right. You know, if you think about it like there's more the dogs are the most abundant large carnivore on the earth now. And I read something like uh well, maybe I shouldn't say it because I'm not trying to get the exact quote right. But, you it's know, okay. there's, there's like 100 house cats for every 100,000 house cats for every tiger in the wild. Wow. So so we've created this this other kind of ecology. You know, we've created this abundance. It's just not in the same way that we understand wild nature to exist. And at the same time, we're going through a mass extinction. And it's and I think that is something to recognize that our impact is having an incredible it's causing incredible changes on a global scale at a rate that hasn't happened, you know, under other natural mass extinctions. So it sounds like there's this conflict between the path that our humanity is going down and wild nature and wild native biodiversity. And at this point, it's not really possible to turn back the clocks. So I don't know, does this mean that 
we have to drastically shift or is this kind of inevitable at this point? So we just have to kind of work with what we have going forward. Yeah. You asked the really big, hard questions, I can tell. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think uh, I really awfully, and it's interesting, it's it's sort of how I felt during this pandemic. It's, you know, I, I have these days where I feel okay, and I'm actually really grateful for the sort of global slowdown that has happened and people taking a moment to look around and and see where they are for a minute and stop the sort of constant headlong rush. And then I have moments of like complete panic and fear and sadness for what's happening on a planetary scale. And I think it it's very similar for me with environmental stuff. On certain days, I feel, you know, I can take that larger scale view and and look at it like we're a force of evolution. We are we are also impacted, right? So we're not we're not just causing evolution in the planet. We're also impacted by that evolution. So in fact, the fact that we no longer eat as many wild foods has impacted our own health in many different ways. So we're no longer probably as robust as our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Mm. And we've kind of gone, undergone our own domestication as we've domesticated the planet and created these new ecological relationships. And then there's other days when I feel incredible grief for the loss that is happening on a planetary scale in terms of the mass extinction and the environmental changes. And, and I think that recognizing that environmental grief is actually a really important first step to making changes, right? It's like we have to come to terms with the incredible loss that we are causing, that we are a part of in our everyday activities um, in order to get to a next level of actually making changes and figuring out how we want to be in relationship with nature, with ourselves, with the non-human members of our global community in my book, there's sort of this secondary narrative about this this heartbreak. I had a, a brief encounter with a conservationist who I just call the hunter in the book. And he sort of serves as this metaphor for heartbreak because I think we're all going through environmental heartbreak, whether we acknowledge it or not. I don't think that you can be a human on this planet and not feel sadness and grief around what is happening ecologically. Mm. So in tracing our relationship to wild foods, you discover what we sacrifice when we domesticate them. So often when we talk about food in the context of sustainability today, we talk about organic, pastured, local, and even regenerative. But that all mostly already holds the assumption that we're talking about domesticated foods that humans have overseen, managed, and stewarded. Your premise challenges us to take a big step back to look at that distinction between domestication and the wild. So what are some of the sacrifices we make through domesticating our foods? And what are some concerns that even local and organic foods, when domesticated, might fail to address? Yeah, I think the first thing really is diversity. So we might go to the grocery store. I mean, I personally sometimes get overwhelmed in the grocery store because there's so many options. There's like 100 different kinds of cereal. How do you decide? <laughs> but actually, this is this is a very huge reduction in the biodiversity that we used to eat. I mean, if you think about these, these 19th century markets in America where you could get 100 different kinds of wild birds, and when you go to a grocery store, your options are basically chicken, maybe duck, maybe uh, pheasant or quail. So our, our, our diets have really, really contracted in terms of biodiversity. And I think even with organic agriculture, I mean, there's, there's great stuff happening around heirloom varieties of things and trying to expand the biodiversity of things that we eat. But if you think about each of these species or, or seeds as sort of like a story, like they came from somewhere, 
then we've really reduced the number of stories that we're telling ourselves when we sit down for a plate of food. Um, we've reduced the amount, the numbers of the kinds of flavors that we get to experience on a daily basis. So I think that's that's one of the first things that we've really lost. So humans have used nearly 30,000 plant species at some point for food or medicine. And to now, now today we rely on just 30. So that's a huge reduction in terms of the biodiversity and the different things that we're, we're able to subsist on. And 60% of our diet is made up of just three annual crops, which is rice, wheat, and corn. And 80% of our agricultural crops are annuals that must be, you know, ripped up and replanted each year. So in terms of, you know, the ecology, that's that's not creating a very diverse ecosystem in terms of an agricultural system, right? So when we domesticate these foods, essentially what we're doing is we're taking this, this huge number of ecological connections where all these animals and plants are coexisting and we're reducing them down to very few connections. So I often, I think of it kind of like a railroad track, right? Like there's just, there's sort of like a one way that this train can move when we're, when we're talking about domestication. You know, interestingly, a lot of domesticated animals and species become reliant on us just as we become reliant on them. So, you know, there's, there's trees in China that are hand pollinated now because there aren't enough bees to pollinate them. And uh, I just heard something about turkeys, domesticated turkeys can no longer, because we've raised them to have breast meat, they can no longer mate with each other. And so they require artificial insemination wow. to continue existing. So so if you think about like an ecosystem with all these fascinating deep connections from the soil microbes all the way up to the trees and all the ways that those species are interacting, and then you think of even an organic agricultural system, those um, connections and those that complexity has really been reduced down to something much more simple. You know, if you haven't had the experience of going out and foraging for food or killing a wild animal for food, I think there is something that exists so deeply in our DNA and in our heritage as humans that connects to that experience. And I think that when we lose that, we lose a sense of really the meaning of eating, which is life and death. You know, it's very, very deep thing to feed yourself and to take another creature, another organism and, and, and take their nutrients and transmute it into your own body, into your living, lived experience. And so I, I do think, you know, most people don't even know where food comes from. They don't know that food comes out of the soil. And to think about wild food on an even other level, I think is really hard for people to connect to. Right. You mentioned the diversity of options that we have in supermarkets, like the cereals. I feel like a lot of that is sort of an illusion of diversity because it's oftentimes totally. a lot of the same things packaged in like a thousand different ways. Yeah, it's just corn, like, you know, add a little sugar here, a little flavoring <laughs> there. You still have like corn, 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 corn. So, yeah. So I guess that's certainly something we have to think about is in order to support our bioregional diversity, we also have to diversify the foods that we're eating. Absolutely. You know, and I think uh, there's, like you said, regenerative agriculture and a lot of organic stuff is, is making amazing strides around that. Heirloom varieties. We have a really cool... Uh, on Tsuki Pueblo here, there's a seed exchange, seed vault. And, and actually, New Mexico, like, we're really famous for our chilies. And those are a lot of those varieties are called land races, which means that they've evolved to this particular environment over hundreds of years. And so they, they, these plants are grown with the certain amount of soil, you know, acidity, sunlight, moisture, all these things. So they're really well adapted to 
to our location. I think one of the hard parts, you know, in terms of eating native foods or local foods is that um, with climate change, with a lot of these ecological changes that we're seeing, things have become very volatile. Things are shifting really quickly. And so plants that maybe were really well adapted here no longer are. And what does it actually mean then to eat local if the things that are thriving here are actually invasive species or things that have come from elsewhere? Mm. It opens up even more questions in terms of the complexity of how to eat, you know, locally and correctly or whatever you want to call it ethically. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I was going to ask whether you think there's a difference between eating maybe local heirloom but not necessarily native foods versus eating native foods. I mean, I think uh, at this point we sort of need it all, right? Like we need the farmers to be growing the organic varieties that thrive well where they are, whether that plant is is native or not. And and I think for me, one of the interesting things with writing this book was sort of this idea of purity that has been woven throughout history, pure landscapes, sort of pure, quote unquote, native communities, and, and really recognizing that there sort of is no such thing as purity, like ecosystems are always changing. Now, <clears throat> that is happening incredibly rapidly now because of these different environmental changes. And you know, I think the question then becomes, how do we decide what what kind of nature needs to be saved? If if none of it is pristine and pure, how do we determine between an abandoned lot in a city and an old growth forest? You know, which which ones are wild nature? Which ones do we want to preserve? Because maybe that abandoned city lot, even though it's full of invasive species that do really well in a disturbed environment, maybe that place is actually thriving, you know, without human intervention. And the old growth forest requires a lot of human intervention to keep it as it is because we have to go in there and take out invasive species you know, prevent trees from getting various diseases and infections. So I think it's it's a really complicated question. I, I do think that knowing your farmer, if you can, is important. But again, I want to bring in this question of privilege. So just like it's becoming more and more privileged to eat wild food, it is a privilege to be able to afford organic food, to be able to go to a grocery, uh, a farmer's market or or buy a CSA. These things are expensive. and And I think part of what I'm interested in is how do we expand this conversation to include questions of environmental justice and food justice so that it's not just something that, you know, wealthy, privileged people have access to, but it's really something that everybody has access to. When our economics are set up to make the fossil fuel corn fields the most, you know, inexpensive uh, option out there, even though that's really having the largest impact in terms of human health and environmental health, those those impacts are not accounted for in the cost of that box of cereal, you know. I just want to say that I love how this conversation is opening up a lot of new questions that we don't necessarily have answers to right now, but they're definitely important questions to ask and just to really show us how much nuance there is in such discussions. You say that we make these sorts of compromises with our knowledge of local foods and biodiversity when wildness itself is misunderstood, commodified, and hotly pursued. Is there a difference between domesticating wild foods and commodifying wild foods? And what would that fine line be between having a reciprocal relationship with wild nature, which does involve taking but also giving, and the other side of that, which is beginning to commodify the wild? 
I think that's a really interesting question. Um, I sort of think of commodification as its own kind of domestication. So domestication has been happening for you know a very, very long time. We don't really understand why domestication arose. You know, there's very few species in the world that practice farming as we do. There's some ants that that farm aphids actually. Um, and they they feed them, and they're kind of, they're kind of like livestock ranching these these aphids. But there's very few creatures on the planet that have this this domestication system that we humans seem to have evolved. So, part of my interest is like why why did this system occur why, that that we entered into this very specific form of relationship with all these different creatures, you know? And there's some people that would say the plants domesticated us, so that, for instance, dogs started hanging around us in the very beginning because we were hunters and they ate our scraps. And then eventually this kind of reciprocal relationship evolved. So I think, you know, domestication has, has been happening a very long time. The rise of agriculture was likely an accident. So we were, we were walking home with our basket of gathered things, some roots and things fell out, started to reseed. Maybe our trash pile near the fire ended up growing into things. And actually it was likely women that kind of ushered in the first domestication because they were very much involved in, in gathering and cooking and these, these, these practices. In other cases, there's certain animals like reindeer where even in the the name reindeer, rain in the deer, these these deer already had this herding capacity built mm-hmm. into them biologically. And so we kind of not necessarily exploited that, but it was a relationship that was almost like ready and there uh, available for us to create this um, domesticated partnership. So in my mind, commodification, there's been various levels of economies and capitalism is, is an old system. You know, we had merchant capitalism, we had there's there's many different forms of capitalism. So I think you can't just talk about commodification as one thing. But I think what commodification generally does is that it increases the distance between the producer and the consumer. And it does that in a lot of ways by standardizing the product so that something that you're getting is going to be very similar to something that you're getting from somewhere else. And, you, and it, it makes it very easy to fit into this larger system. And so as capitalism has expanded to be global, We've just increasingly created this standardized way of food for food for all of our products. I mean, ISO uh, certification is a is a standard that is basically global and now affects pretty much every sort of product that you're going to buy in the store has an ISO certification. So, so in in a lot of ways, commodification is a standardization. And if you think of wildness as the weird and the sort of untamable and this idea that there's this abnormality to a wild creature. You know, if you go out and forage for a mushroom, it might be very strange looking because of how it grew on the side of a tree and the way that the light came and the particular storm that it experienced as it was flourishing. And then if you look at a mushroom that was grown for a commercial harvest in a very commodified way, they look basically all the same because of that standard of production. Mm. So would you say that standardization and our and our expectations for standardization is sort of at odds with respecting and understanding the wild as it is yeah i mean i think it i i think it's really interesting i mean humans have a really hard time kind of holding paradox in their minds and contradiction but in in my belief like contradiction is sort of what fuels the world and paradox exists all around us and even in our own psychology you know i think we we kind of feel comfortable with the, the standard and the domesticated, and we we feel comfortable when we kind of know exactly what we're going to expect. Uh, we get exactly what we're expecting to get. 
On the other hand, we really were, were creatures that love novelty and love change and love surprise. And so there's part of us that actually really craves that wildness, both in ourselves and in, in you know, our food and our world. And so I think it's really always been this balance between how do we have that stability that standardization or domestication or even commodification allows for. You know, we know we can go to the grocery store and get the sack of potatoes and they're going to look basically the same that they do every time that we go. And yet we want to come home and figure out a new recipe because we're tired of the same old mashed potatoes. So mm-hmm. I think it's this really interesting paradox and contradiction in human nature, in human psychology for a feeling of wanting the domesticated, but also craving for the wildness. Right. You know, just like we want everyone to be themselves, but also sort of fit into a standard societal box. So it's <laughs> kind of like, you know, we haven't made up our minds yet which one we actually want. Right. Um, we're currently in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic as we're speaking early April. So this is pretty relevant at this point, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this pandemic being attributed to people eating non-domesticated foods, specifically wild animals that most people who eat only domesticated foods or domesticated animals may find surprising or repulsive even. We've had several other podcast guests who focus specifically on zoonotic diseases and why we've made ourselves more vulnerable to pandemics like this one. But what are your thoughts on how we can reconcile that conflict that this may spark among environmental conservationists? Namely, on the one hand, this idea that we should learn from indigenous knowledge to rewild ourselves and help to restore our local landscapes by perhaps eating more bioregional, biodiverse wild foods, as opposed to this other idea that the pandemic may spark, that we should move away from interfering with wild nature and hunting and foraging anything that's untamed in fear of coming into contact with more pathogens that we're not equipped to fight? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating question. You know, E.O. Wilson has this idea, I think he calls half earth, where he thinks we should just take half of the planet and set it aside for wild nature and crowd ourselves into cities and kind of be disconnected from that in order to preserve that biodiversity. You know, and on the other hand, I I mean, I don't think my book necessarily advocates eating wild, but as I've talked about, you know, it's this huge part of our heritage, of our evolution, of our emotions, of our our physical bodies that are is really important to us to eat wild foods. Culturally, for a lot of communities, this this is, you know, goes back very, very deeply into their culture in terms of their food culture. And I think, so there's a lot of things there. These diseases have been on the rise. Um, They've been with us a long time. I was just reading about a description of an epidemic in the Iliad that was nine days during the Trojan War that first killed horses and dogs and then eventually men. And so these kinds of zoonotic diseases have been with us for a very long time. But, But the way that the world is configured now is increasing the risk of these. Um, So just like during the rise of the first agricultural cities in the Fertile Crescent, which led to the emergence of new diseases such as smallpox and the Black Plague, the growth of megacities has created sort of the perfect conditions for the development of these new diseases. So these markets are now having creatures from, you know, Asian forests and African forests and kind of all together stacked in cages, their immune systems of these animals are low. Um, So we've really created these conditions to create these novel diseases. Other things like deforestation has really impacted the rise of these diseases. Maybe you've, you've talked about this on other podcasts, but we've fragmented ecosystems so that these sort of fundamental ecological processes are under assault. 
And, you know, for example, deforestation has led fruit bats to change their movement patterns and seek out food in human settlements. And so then you're exposing humans to these novel pathogens that the bats kind of naturally carry. And then climate change can also change disease vectors in in really important ways. Um, so I think for all these reasons, you know, we've, we've created the ecological conditions for these sort of things to arise. I think it's really important to try and resist a very racist interpretation of this. You know, there's a lot, there's been a lot of stuff about like, ew, these disgusting Chinese are eating uncooked bats and things like that. But as we've talked about, the West has a really long history of eating wild food as well. I don't know. It's it's very complicated. Right now, about a billion people still rely on wild food for subsistence. So, you know, I think there is definitely a difference between eating wild food out of necessity and eating wild food because it's like a, an interesting luxury item or because of these sort of ideas that it might give you some sort of health benefit. They think that this particular virus potentially came from pangolin. We don't really know yet, but pangolin are one of the most trafficked animals in the world. And it's, you know, believed that their scales have medicinal value, even potentially against COVID, which is kind of ironic. Mm. I think the hard part is that this industry, the wildlife industry, is a multi-billion dollar, um, mostly black market industry. It's it's the third largest sort of underground trade after guns and drugs is the wildlife trade. So we've been trying to crack down on this for a very long time. And a blanket ban on these things isn't necessarily going to impact that sort of black market trade. But but I do think there's no reason why someone in China should be eating an African animal. I just think that we we really have to do we do have to get back to a more localized version of eating wild if we can. There's so much to think about. And with your understanding of the historical context of our relationship with food and with wild food, and with your knowledge of where we are today, where we've already caused a lot of ecological changes to our environments, what are your thoughts and what is your vision for what needs to happen going forward or what a truly sustainable and regenerative food system can look like for us in the future? I, as you know, love wild food. So, you know, I, I ate um, dandelion greens with eggs this morning and I just went onto my backyard. There's these plants that came up on their own and I picked those and they're full of a lot of really good nutrients and antioxidants. Um, most people would consider them a weed. So I think there are ways that we can connect to the wild nature that is all around us all the time in ways that aren't particularly destructive. There's questions too of eating like invasive species that might be having a bad in, in, uh, ecological impact. So for instance, like kudzu vine, um, which is taking over a lot of the South or Japanese knotweed, those are edible. There's people that have been eating lionfish in Florida, which have been impacting native species. So invas invasivorism is an interesting approach. There's a huge feral pig population in the Southwest and in Texas that's causing a lot of destruction. But again, we we have questions about if those things get commodified and then you're you're basically needing market demand, uh, you're, you're needing to satisfy that market demand, is that in a way going to increase our reliance on these species or potentially um, cause other ecological impacts? But for me, I think it's really, it's about noticing that wild nature that's all around us. So maybe you start saying hi to the trees on your commute to work 
or you spend an hour watching the house fly in your house and just understanding what what is it doing? What is its experience of the world? You know, so it's not necessarily that we have to all start eating wild food, but I think we can slowly start shifting our consciousness to recognize sort of all of these other creature, creatures that we coexist with on this planet. And that I think will help us to start to live in a way that feels more ecologically healthy. Mm. So maybe we just need a shift from a more demand-driven food system to more of a supply-driven food system. So I'm also thinking about how a lot of the Amazon rainforest has been cleared for cattle ranching or for monocultures, when in fact, I'm sure there's so many, there's so many potential food sources in that biodiverse rainforest, but it just may be foods that people don't know about or that people mm -hmm. don't know are edible. Yeah, I mean, I think knowledge is very, very key. And and the global food system is, it's basically turning oil into food. I mean, it's, it's, it is a huge, huge global multinational commodity industry. It's going to be very complicated to try and take down. I know you've had people on your show talking about um, soil. The soil issue is really, really important in terms of There's quotes out there that we have 100 harvests left before we're out of topsoil, and there's some debate about how accurate that number is. But the point is that we're basically mining soil every time we create food, and so much of our food system is reliant on on heavy um, amounts of oil usage. You know, but I have a friend whose family owns a cotton farm in the in the South, and it's it's very hard to transition these large scale things that are reliant on these very global supply change in, into something else. I mean, the economics are just very complicated. So I, I think that eating wild food isn't necessarily going to shift those large scale changes. But what it can help us to start recognizing, again, is that all of this is part of a larger ecology. And how do we bring back, you know, more biodiversity, more sort of ecological health into these systems, while also taking care to really feed people and take care of people, so yeah, I don't know. I'm not, it's it's such a complicated it's such a complicated topic. I do think that eating wild food can help us with conservation because the more that people can connect to these landscapes that are providing these foods and and when they see a forest, not just think oh there's a forest, but think oh there's a, a whole range of foods that that forest is providing that they might be more likely to work on conservation issues. For instance, with the Amazon, you know, if, if we see it as this incredible supermarket versus just something to be cut down to grow soybeans and cattle, maybe that we'll have a different, you know, sense of, of desire to protect that space, that place. Green Dreamer for our mindful musical intermission. This is The Fruitful Darkness by Trevor Hall. When I look back on those
What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Yeah, I was thinking about this because I've read so many books in the last five years and working on this book, and it's it's hard to pick just one. But Sally uh, Karagar, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce her name, but she was a nature writer kind of in the 50s and 60s, and I think she's really undervalued. But one of her books, Icebound Summer, she has another one called Wild Heritage, and they're just these really beautiful meditations on they're, – they're kind of written from the perspective of animals. So she spent a lot of time outside just observing wild creatures and then writing these really lovely stories about the experience of those creatures. And for me, I think that it it was so important to understand this sort of, to get this perspective that's a shift away from the anthropocentrism that a lot of nature writing has at its heart. So so really starting to see the world through the eyes of these other creatures, I think is is also going to be really important for us going forward. You know, we're not the only species on this planet. There's, There's a million different ways of experiencing the world based on all these different creatures that we cohabitate with. So I really, I do love those books. A similar book, The Peregrine by J.A. Baker, he spends days going out and tracking wild peregrines and wild falcons. And by the end, you can see that he almost starts to think like these birds. Mm. And so I think that shift in perspective is really, really cool and could give us all a new way of kind of seeing the environment. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? So I, I really love gratitude practices. I think it's a really wonderful way of reframing things. But I also love complaining um, <laughs> about things. So for me, I actually really always come back to curiosity. For me, that is a source of positivity and inspiration and, and really grounding. So, you know, it's hard to stay upset or angry when you when you can be curious. Curious about your emotions, about how the other people's life experiences, Um, about how nature works, you know, and I think that that can really lead to empathy and connection. So just like when I was a kid, if I'm finding myself feeling bummed out, I will just go and sit and watch ants go about their business for an hour. And I come away from that feeling really uplifted and inspired. (laughs) Mm. What is one thing you're working on right now for your health? So this might sound silly, but actually, it's just breathing. I realized recently how often I unintentionally or unconsciously hold my breath. Mm. There's a lot of research that looks at how trauma can actually impact people's regular breathing. Um, so I've I've been exploring some um, holotropic or sometimes called psychedelic breath work. And it's really, really powerful for releasing stored trauma. You know, I think breathing is so simple and yet it can be really hard to do. So yeah, just taking a lot of breaths. Mm. <laughs> Um, what are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? So, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm trying to get my book out there because I'm hoping that it will be an inspiration to people and a positive impact in the world. But, you know, this question has come up really strongly lately with the pandemic. And I've talked to a number of friends who are artists or writers or creatives sort of questioning, like, what is what I'm doing actually the most impactful thing that I can be doing? And how can I be working to make things better? I think sometimes it can feel really paralyzing in the world. And so I actually think what I'm doing right now, and especially having just finished this book and trying to figure out my next project is just sitting with that question of like, where, where does my heart go in terms of the positive impact that I want to make on this planet? Mm -hmm. And, And I sometimes think that that's as important as the action is spending that time to really dive deep in. And, you know, I think the most positive impacts that we can make are those things that bring us joy. And so trying to find, you know, where, where does that source of joy lie for me as well? Which is not to say that writing doesn't 
you know, writing is an impossible task. And I hated the, writing this book a lot of the time, but it also had its moments of pure bliss. So yeah, I, I, it's a moment where I think a lot of us are trying to ask that question, which I think is really beautiful. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? So, you know, I, I often joke that like about the saying that the future is female, I'm like, okay, now that things are getting tough, we're, we're finally saying, okay, it's time for women to step in and start fixing things, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think this has historically been true. It's like, things are getting hard, time for the women to come in. But more seriously, I think there's so much to be hopeful about right now. I think that the fact that on a global level, we are starting to recognize and hopefully value the contributions of half the planet is really, really amazing, that knowledge. And whether it's as simple as like, being grateful for your grandmother's recipes that you hadn't really paid attention to before. And suddenly it's like the thing that's grounding you and keeping you there. I mean, I, I think that that uplifting women's labor, which has so long been silenced, is really, really important. Um, and then when you start down that that thread, that path, you realize, okay, this is also related to indigenous rights, to animal rights, to environmental and climate justice. I, I think there's like so much interesting stuff happening with regenerative agriculture, beyond organic, things that are building the soil during this pandemic. It's been really exciting to see people engaging with food, planting Corona Victory Gardens. You know, the ba baby chicks have sold out because so many people are interested in raising their own chicks now. And then also I think the youth, like things like the Sunrise Movement and the Extinction Rebellion, it really inspires me to see that the youth give a shit and and are are starting to kind of get get things together and say if you if you older people are not going to do it we're going to we're going to do it but you know i think there's a lot of room for hope especially from taking that perspective that we're part of this larger evolving ecology and that most people's intention is not destruction you know it's a byproduct of a system that we've created and a byproduct of of these larger capitalist systems and so i i think by recognizing that we're part of this larger ecology and acting within our own environment, it really provides room for kind of like recognizing our mistakes and also forgiving ourselves for those so that we can move forward um, in a positive way. So, you know, people have been, it's been really cool to see with this pandemic, people saying like, let's not return to normal. Like, let's imagine something better for the future. Mm. So it's www.ginareelc.com. That's G-I-N-A-R-A-E-L-C.com to learn more about Gina Ray. You can purchase or pre-order her new book coming out May 26th, Feasting Wild on IndieBound, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or better yet, please support your local bookstore and see if they have it there first. And of course, you can also follow her on, on Instagram at Feasting Wild and on Twitter at Gina Ray LC. I did want to touch on this. I know you had some pretty crazy and surprising adventures that you documented within your book, which is part memoir and part travelogue. For our concluding question, would you mind sharing one of the wildest things that you experienced as well as, I guess, the key learning lessons that you'd like to share with our listener? So I don't want to give away too much about the book because there's lots of exciting adventures in there. But one at one moment, I found myself on the back of a motorcycle with a geriatric misogynist who was saying that he was a, uh, this was in Borneo in Malaysia. <laughs> and I'm on the back of this motorcycle and we're trying to find this boat that I'm taking upstream to this roadless village. And he's telling me that I am his captive Indian princess and, and he's a cowboy and he's taking me on an adventure. And so I found myself, you know, 
uh, on the back of this bumpy motorcycle, like, what the heck am I doing here? How did I get here? What is going on? And, you know, looking for this boat with this, the stranger that I met 10 minutes before. So I think for me, part of the experience of writing this book and, and part of sort of my final words of wisdom, you know, as someone who might be kind of a secret closeted control freak, I, I often remind myself sort of how little control we have, that it's actually quite refreshing to realize that we are part of this like magnificent complex system where these sort of tiny blips of light, you know, and that can feel kind of nihilistic or scary, but it's actually really freeing. It's sort of saying that I am open to the mystery that encircles us to, you know, taking this 4.5 billion year view of how I got to this moment and this experience and recognizing that we're part of this larger ecology that that everything we do is an ecological act. And, and I think that can be really spiritually liberating. So, you know, we're, we're part of this vastly complex fabric, this continuously evolving system. It's all a process and, and we are really wild nature experiencing itself. Oh, no.